Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Tom Fortis Mayer. He is the author of this book, uh, which I've read, uh, The Free Mind Experience, The Three Pillars of Absolute Happiness. He's <laughs> the creator of the Free Mind Mindset app. He's a, a musician. Uh, so uh, many, a man of many talents. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Very, very pleased to be here. And for those of, of my listeners who've not come across you or your work, it'd be really useful if you could uh, fill us in a little bit on your backstory. I think I've got some understanding because you include some of your story in the book. But yeah, for, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, yeah. Sure, sure. Well, past 23 years, I've been a therapist. My original training was in hypnotherapy. But I think the thing uh, you know that's relevant to that story is up until 27, I, I, I thought all personal development, all therapy, all kind of spirituality was absolute and utter nonsense. And um, I was brought up by a very loving but very scientific uh, father who believed all such things were absolute nonsense and brought me up to believe the same. And then very inconveniently at 27, I had a profound moment of clarity and it changed my life in an instant. And from then, I've just been trying to understand human happiness, the human condition, and an epiphany. Like I was walking, breathing, living evidence that my life was transformed in a single instant, like utterly, utterly transformed. And so since then, I've been absolutely obsessed with the things that can change people's ideas. And so I didn't really consider myself a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist or a therapist. I can, uh, my whole passion was using my practice as a laboratory to understand transformational techniques and transformational ideas. And I've been distilling those principles, practices, and techniques for 23 years now. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about that moment then. Yeah. Can you, can you sort of slow it down and, and step us through that? I'm, I'm very intrigued. I, I can. I can. I, I mean, I think there's, there's two sides to it. There's the story itself, um, but then there's the description of the, the moment or the event, which I think is probably mm. even more relevant for people. Yeah. yeah. Which is um, a number of things happened which led me to perceive and, and experience the universe in a way which is connected and, and um, benevolent. Like there is a movement within the field of consciousness towards greater expressions of truth, love, and freedom. And, and in that moment, I realized that everything in my life had been expressing that to me, but I hadn't been tuned in enough to see the message, to understand the part I was playing, creating suffering for myself, and that actually great joy, great happiness, great abundance is available to everyone if we tune in to see the messages that are highlighting how lost we are and how disconnected we are and how we no longer need to be and have never needed to be. And that there is a path in our discomfort, there is message in our experience of our suffering that it gives us the signpost back to our freedom. And that revelation meant, I guess I spent half an hour, which is quite a long time, in a state of total fearlessness. Now, mm. I, prior to that, wouldn't have considered myself a particularly anxious person. I didn't feel, I felt I was pretty confident, pretty relaxed. But it was only when that level of tension left my body that I realized how much fear and what people thought of me or what I thought of me or, you know, 
was holding me back. Like it was vast. And once that fear was gone, I felt such an extraordinary sense of love and joy and contentment. I was like, wow, what is, what is this? This is the good stuff. You know, that's why, I mean, I was ahead in this before. I was looking for happiness in all the wrong places, you know, yeah. and, and yet I still consider myself really a hedonist. It's just the, the good stuff was this state of bliss. And I was like, wow. So my interest was really, um, yes, how do you establish that state of bliss? But then what I realized was actually that, that, that bliss is our natural state. Mm. What detracts from that is all of our unresolved resentment, frustration, fears, doubts, insecurities. So I've spent all these years working out how to dissolve those. So some people would describe me as a trauma therapist because I do an awful lot of work in helping mm. people overcome trauma. And, you know, I work in helping successful people become a lot more successful. And they're very surprised because they're expecting me to coach them on their business strategy. And I'm like, tell me about your mother, you know? Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, sometimes people call me a, like, a, like a financial therapist. It's like, I will bring the therapy to you so that you can make more money. It's it, because actually our unresolved developmental frustrations and sadnesses and insecurities that everyone gathers along the way of being human just completely block our contentment, block our happiness, block our confidence. And when we clear that stuff away, we start operating with greater clarity, focus, passion, enthusiasm, um, diligence, kindness. And these are highly investable. These are the things that lead to us being way, way, way more successful. Wow. Yeah. Well, and thank you for describing the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm left with an intrigue of how, how did you get yourself to that place? Were there certain mm. steps you took that made it more likely that was going to happen? Was it a total fluke? Like, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think, yes. So afterwards, what was amazing to me was when I looked at what led to that kind of uh, epiphany, there was some very, and it was, it was fluke, mainly fluke. Um, but, but what I was like, I, I was like, okay, but I was, it was coincidental and synchronistic and lucky, mm. but there were ingredients, there were ingredients. And so my interest in working with individuals is how do I then bring these ingredients together to make it way mm. more likely people have these paradigm shifts. But for me, ironically, I, you know, I'd love to tell you something like a magical story, um, in terms of like some profound moment, but actually what I witnessed, the tipping point for me, the final thing was I witnessed an argument. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I was in India and I wasn't yeah. in India as any kind of spiritual seeker. I'd spent my early nineties in Goa for a few months in the kind of raves of the early nineties. The best parties in the world happened in Goa. So I went having discovered raving. I'd gone to Goa for those parties and indeed, absolutely incredible. 1992 in Goa, mind blowing. And I then kind of, and it set me on a path where I was just a hedonist and all I did, so I was running nightclubs, you know, I was a rave promoter. I was on a completely different path. And, um, and then it was the millennium. And uh, I thought to myself, well, where do I want to go for the ultimate party, for the ultimate celebration? This is like, 
you know, in the new millennium. And I was like, I'm going to Goa, you know? So I didn't go to India for spiritual reasons. I was just pursuing pleasure. Mm. I was there. Sure enough, that party was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And it went on for hours and I danced for hours. And, but when I woke up, I couldn't believe it. So I danced for hours and the sun came up and I kept dancing in there. I even to the point where the sun went down on January 1st, I'd still been partying and it was full on, uh, but amazing. And I thought I was going to sleep for a week, but I went, I walked home. Uh, my, my hotel was really nearby and I walked back to my hotel and, um, and I passed out immediately. And I thought I was going to sleep for a week, but actually after about five or six hours, I woke and I now know that I was in such a state, I was totally sober, I woke completely present, deeply present. And this was a really key part of what led to this breakthrough for me. And now more than anything, if I was going to share any golden nugget for anyone, the key to everything in life is presence. Mm. Absolute presence. When we can be present, everything becomes magical. Our clarity, our insight, our awareness, our boundaries. It's the taste of the strawberry, the kiss with the lover, everything has the capacity to be a thousand times more mind-blowing. It's like almost like everything is insanely, epically, beautifully orchestrated for our freedom. But most people just aren't tuned in or paying attention. So that morning, by fluke, I was present. And I woke up and I could hear this, <laughs> still in the distance. I couldn't believe the party was still going on. And so I went back. I was like, it was too early to get breakfast anywhere. And I knew they still have all the chai mats around where women are stoking these chai things and you can go and have a few biscuits and sit down. And I, was, I didn't want to dance anymore. My body was knackered, but I thought, I'll just go there and see who's still dancing and go back to the scene of the crime, really, and, and uh, get myself a cup of tea. And as I entered, you know, the party had probably had two, 3,000 people in its full swing. Now there was maybe 100 people you know, still, still dancing. It's now, you know, January 2nd, you know, and, uh, and I was leaning against a tree cause it was an outside party, right. In, within an enclosure, but outside. So there's palm trees and uplit things. And it was a beautiful setting right on top of Vagator Hill, which is in the kind of North Goa. So beautiful, beautiful crystalline blue skies and just ah, lovely setting baked orange earth and and there was this indian holy man sat on one of these chai mats and you wouldn't expect like an indian holy man to kind of attend a rave like that right or or but I, so i was fascinated now i was as i said a complete atheistic hedonistic no faith no belief in anything anyone who was religious i thought was utterly pathetic right that those were my beliefs and, and yet I had to respect that these wandering mendicants, these holy men, they believed that, you know, ultimately they walk around. And this idea that they walk around with a begging bowl is a misnomer. It's not that. Yeah, I like the, that in the book you mentioned, yeah. It, but, it, but that idea, basically, they have no property. Therefore, the idea being they have no political, there's no, poli there's no politics to them. They can be a free being. They have no family. They have no, so they can be a vessel of pure truth. That's the belief. And if they can be a vessel of pure truth, then they are valued everywhere they go. So it's not that they're begging. It's like people would invite them into their homes and feed them, and then they would be a vessel of truth, and you could get 
direct spiritual connection to them. Mm. I thought it was utter nonsense, but I still respected their faith because that's yeah. commitment, right? Mm. To just like trust that you'll be looked after by the universe and to have yeah. no agenda and just to bimble around being a vessel of truth and love. I'm like, wow. I honestly thought only in India, right? You couldn't do that in England. One, because it's too flipping cold. And two, you know, and, and two people are, you know, just in India, there's like, like millions, literally at the Kumela Festival, there's 15, 20 million of these. Yeah, you said f- there's 50, potentially 15 million of these guys in yeah, India. Yeah. Right. Wandering around, right? It's insane, right? And so, um, so, uh, but I just, I just put that down to India just being like ridiculously, pathetically, religiously superstitious, right? So I'm pretty snooty, right? To say the least, cynical, skeptical. Anyway, but I, I, I found this guy fascinating, like fascinating. I felt, I felt, and it sounds weird, but I felt attracted to him. Now I know when my intuition is saying, oh, there's something to pursue here or to follow and to follow the, the intuition. But I was like, why do I want to go? What, what's going on there? Anyway, after a little while, whilst I'm thinking about why my brain just went, or my heart said, just, he's at a time, go have a cup of tea, you know? What do you know? So I sat down, he said hello, just by wobbling his head slightly in that very beautiful Indian way. I ordered myself a cup of tea. And then we were watching, sitting, facing, saying, watching the people dancing. It was quite playful what was happening on the dance floor. So we kind of chortled together a couple of times, but I couldn't get an inroad. And I felt I meant to have some kind of engagement with this guy, but I didn't Mm. know what. I was meant to be there and I was meant to engage with him, but I couldn't, I didn't know, I didn't know how to do that. So I'm a bit confused for a while, but I haven't been sat there very long. And then the chai mama running this little chai mat, out of nowhere, just started having this go at him. And just like in Hindi, so I didn't understand it. But basically, I was guessing it was like, you've been here for days, the party's winding down, you've had 10 teas, and you're not known for having any money, and how are you going to pay your bill, you know? It, was mm. that, it had that feel about it. And it was amazing, because he just listened to her and then just wobbled his head, didn't say a word, and seemed to placate her. And I thought this was, I thought it was powerful, and I thought it was interesting. Anyway, sipping my tea. And then it dawned on me, and I, it dawned on me where I knew this more than I'd known anything ever in my whole life. I wasn't there to speak to him. I wasn't there to get some kind of insight from him. I wasn't there to do anything other than pay for his bloody tea. I knew it. And it wasn't a, a, a charitable act. It wasn't a kind. It was nothing. That was my flipping job. Mm. It was my job. And I, I smoked then. And I, I you know, I... I bundled together, I don't know, enough money for 50 teas or something like that. It was like a few pounds or something, you know, and put it in a little cigarette box with some cigarettes and even some, some um, stuff you might like to smoke because they're known for their smoke and, 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 and then was able to secrete it in a way underneath his knee while he wasn't looking, where he'd find it for sure in a moment. But I, it was really clear to me, I wasn't there for praise. I wasn't there for thanks. Mm. I paid for my tea and I left. And as I walked away, my whole system started to vibrate where I realized from a very scientific point of view, I had just proven that his model was true. Here was he operating from truth and love. And I, thanks to presence and enough sensitivity, because I danced myself into kind of like presence the night before. Open state. (laughs) 
yeah, totally open state. And I followed an intuitive impulse to sit with him. And then I was clear enough to see the need and willing from not an egotistical place to meet that need. And what happened was when I paid his tea, and I'm used to this now, when I find I do something in alignment, I get flooded with this bliss. It's like, ah, that was what was meant to happen. I fulfilled my purpose. And I believe in every single interaction every day, there is a purpose to us being there. And if we can think like that as our presence with our joy, not with our doing something good, but with our fully liberated self-expression and as much joy and passion as possible, that is a purpose. There's a purpose to us in every interaction and that we then get this sensation of fulfillment. So it's not about who, what we do, it's about who we be, which is where we get our fulfillment. Does that then lead to us making more money, having more results, getting all the stuff that we might have previously thought where enjoyment comes from? Yeah. And is that fun? Definitely. But fulfillment comes from who we're being, not what we're doing and not what we're achieving and not what we're earning. And I then, that was my first experience of that divine bliss where I'd done my job. I was finally in alignment with a cosmic conscious universe. And I had proven that to myself because I just paid for this guy's tea. I'm like, holy shit, this is, he's right. Oh my God, my dad's an idiot. What does he know? This guy's onto something here. It's like, oh my God. And, and, the, and the bliss just started expanding, expanding. And, and two things happened at the same time. One, this was the best news ever. It was scientific evidence of a connected, loving universe. That's pretty cool. And so I found it hilarious. And I burst out laughing like it was the funniest joke I'd ever heard. But at exactly the same time, my heart broke for how disconnected I'd been, how much fear I had, how much difficulty I'd brought, and how much stress I'd created in my life. Not knowing that. And then I, my heart broke. And so I, I burst into tears. And so I was crying unconsolably and laughing like uncontrollably at the same time, which was a very weird experience. And yet I've since read that that is a kind of a fundamental part of what can then lead to these oneness experiences, you know, where the dissolving of duality ends and, and you're just in this state of kind of connected and it's exquisite and excruciating and it's painful and liberating. And I proceeded to um, get out of there. My motorbike was still there because even though my hotel was nearby, we'd driven from some distance the night before and I couldn't find it when I left because it was just in a sea of bikes. And so I could see it and I jumped on it and Vagator Hill, the top of Vagator Hill was just half a mile away. And I just, all I wanted to do because what was happening was weird and I knew it looked weird because I was, I was leaving the party and I was starting to almost run out of there because whilst it looked weird, it felt amazing. I was right. crying, laughing, and, and I didn't want it to stop, but I felt a bit self-conscious around people. So I just thought, oh, I'll just, and I drove up that hill and I sat on top of this hill and then, yeah, for half an hour, I kind of melted. I kind of dissolved into the experience of this state of oneness and felt just this utter love and, and happiness and then just such compassion for this thing that had thought it was called Tom that was embodied in this human form that was not me. It was an aspect of me and it was a blip on an eternal kind of sensate field of this much wider love. And um, yeah, that was it. 
that was it. My life was irre- irrevocably. I sent an email to my then business partner that day. It's over. I'm done. I'm not running clubs anymore. Don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to understand what this is. I, I want to understand what this is. And this is all I want to do. And, and I wrote, I began writing the first iteration of that book that you held up. Right. Um, that day. Wow. Wow. Day. I mean, that book never got published and I'm glad because it was, immature and ungrounded and, and didn't have the technical understanding I have now. Um, but when I started writing that book, I was like, this is it. You know, people, people need to know this. You know, I've been so cynical and I've misunderstood the meaning of everything. And I've caused so much pain for myself and my loved ones along the way, thinking that there was something wrong, something that needed to be fixed and that I would be okay when X, Y, and Z happened. Yeah. Oh no, X, Y, and Z will happen when I feel okay. Yeah. And so all the people I work with to make them more successful, they, they think that I will be successful and then I will be happy. And mm. I'm like, no, no, we're going to get you happy and then you will be successful. Yeah. And we have to look at, and most people don't realize that actually I, I'm in the happiness business, but therefore I spend my time looking at people's unhappiness. That's why right. I, I end up doing so much trauma therapy because it's the dissolving of the, the unhappiness that clears the way for our natural happiness, the happiness of the absolute yeah. to be there, which is our natural state. Yeah, no. Wow. Well, what a story. Just in rapt attention there. That was extraordinary. And I'm now left with, wow, where do we go with that? That feels like a peak moment. Um, yeah. So you're so 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 you've had this ex- extraordinary experience, and then you know you 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 make the, you take these actions. You email your business partner. You you start writing the book. Um, h- how do you kind of reintegrate from that though? How like mm. yeah? And, and what's that process then like? Clunkily, clunk clunkily is I think the, is the is the kindest description. And I think I have spent 23 years working out how to talk about this stuff in ways that are actually useful for people. Because mm. the interesting thing for me was I started ranting to people <laughs> about oneness and unconditional love and the fact that materialism is not the answer. And it was really interesting because while still feeling like an atheist, mm. I didn't believe I did God somewhere, I heard from my friends, the other friends were saying that I'd found God and rather that I was kind of ramming God down people's throat. And I'm like, okay. I don't believe in God. I'm just talking about love, right? And yet I realized it was because my limited understanding of what God really is or what divine consciousness really is and what life is, is really all about that, you know, I had all these weird prejudices, but you, I got very sensitive. And I think because I used to be so cynical and so skeptical, I, I have always been very, very aware of how this stuff um, affects people and, and, and right. bothers people, jars with people. And so, yeah, it was clunky to begin with, even with that awareness, I got that wrong and I'd be switching people off and turning people off. And I, cause I would say most of the people I work with aren't overtly spiritual or really interested in being spiritual when well, they're interested in being yeah. more successful yeah, and they're interested in being happier. Um, and yet most of them are, um, are unaware that it's our relationship to self and relationship to life and a context of meaning, context of purpose that really enables us to, to be happy and be successful. And so 
that was all fairly difficult. And, and, you know, I then had a voracious appetite for learning, whereas previously I hadn't. And so I was just kind of self-teaching around philosophy yeah. and spirituality and, and psychology. You know, it's like, wow, how could I learn how to um, recreate or to, to create epiphanies, to engineer epiphanies? And yeah. I'd had a profound experience of hypnosis some years before and, and kind of dismissed it, even though it, it really had an impact. And when I studied all these different models, I really did. I had a very clean brain. So I hadn't, if I'd been brought up a Catholic, that would have been a Catholic experience. If I'd been brought up a Buddhist, it would have been a Buddhist experience. But I yeah. was clean, neutral. And so I then studied loads of these different models and began to realize that they all had some similarities. And I became obsessed with what's the perennial philosophy? What's the, what's the parallel truth? Because if something's said in all these different cultures from all these different times, that's probably true. Mm. And so I, that's what I got fixated on. And that is what I found useful. And that's what I created this new model of psychology on. It's like the perennial wisdom, the, 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 the universally corroborated truths. And one of those, one of those is what you see in all of these models of real transformation is some method for transcendence. Whether you're spinning like a whirling dervish, whether you're dancing to African drums, whether you're meditating or with some version of prayer or whether you're taking psychedelics or, you know, it's like, ah, oh, there is in all of these cultures, in all of these models of transformation, some method of transcendence. And so that's why I went to study hypnotherapy because I saw hypnotherapy as this really beautiful meeting ground of spirit and science, even though it didn't know that itself. And when I studied hypnosis, you know, they were using this brilliant tool, but they were still peddling the, so the normal social worldview. Whereas my experience was like, actually, most people who are unhappy are having a very healthy response to a very weird world. Mm. And that the model of the world and the model of how we think we're going to be happy is actually the pollution, is actually the perversion, is actually the thing that's causing the trouble. So if I could become a hypnotherapist and instead of hypnotizing people to glue them back together and get them out onto the treadmill and actually pull apart their ideas about how social conditioning doesn't lead to happiness and get them to think differently about their fullest spiritual and personal emotional self-expression. And that what I saw very rapidly was people started getting a lot happier and a lot more successful a lot more quickly than the traditional model of hypnosis and the traditional model of therapy. So I didn't study hypnotherapy to become a therapist. I was trying to understand epiphany. But when I realized that they didn't understand the power of the tool or the foundation of where real happiness comes from, and I combined those things, then before I knew it, my private practice just completely just took off. It was insane. Right, right, yeah. And that to me, and so then I was like, suddenly I'm no longer a kind of club promoting dodgy wheeler dealer i'm suddenly have a life of meaning and satisfaction and it was amazing to me i was helping people be happy but really i was practicing the speed with which i could get people to have these big shifts like i had right right and the, the phrase that comes to mind which i read somewhere was um you know, enlightenment or epiphany is is always an accident but spiritual practice can make you more accident prone right <laughs> nice. That's lovely. That's lovely. And, and so I'm wondering, is that, does that, is that true for you? Or, or can you kind of engineer these moments with some level of predictability? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely the spiritual practice is what makes you more lax and prone, like you'll get luckier for sure. But no, you are actually, the, the, what I've realized is actually there are six techniques of transformation that I believe if you learn these six techniques and apply them, that you, um, that you won't just be excellent prone, that you will have direct paradigm shifts. So now when I work with people, I apply these techniques and I'm able to take people from disconnected and afraid to connected and loving. And it can sometimes be profound. It sometimes might take me a few months. And it sometimes can be, and, and, and sometimes can be very quick. And sometimes you work with someone for quite a long time, and then there's one session where it switches. So still, it's still a single moment. And I believe that single moment is, is available to people in the first moment. And sometimes, rarely, I'm not going to say it happens often, but sometimes someone will see you and you can just pinpoint the piece and you can fix that piece and then they are transformed. They're utterly transformed. Well, they still need to work on themselves for the rest of their lives, of course. You know, it's like, I like Zig Ziglar talks about motivation like this, but I think of it as spirituality. It's like, it's like bathing. You, you don't do it once, right? Mm. It's something you have to keep doing, right? It's like you, you, you have to keep, we live in a world which is, um, is almost counterintuitive to our spiritual peace and contentment. And therefore we have to work at staying in harmony and staying connected in a world that's almost begging us to be disconnected. Um, but I think the thing that creates the most rapid breakthrough, which is really now my area of specialism, is, is around self-sabotage. Because the thing that stuck out in my moment of clarity, I didn't just feel love and happiness. I felt this like deeply wise understanding that everything is connected, that there's a perfection to everything. And that doesn't mean I'm just I'm dismissing human suffering. I don't mean that. What I mean is if you, if you don't drink water in the morning, uh, in the evening, you'll probably have a dehydration headache. Now that headache is horrible. You're not pretending the headache's perfect, but the headache is a perfect communication from your system that something is out of alignment, right? Right. In the same way, I'm not going to give people who, whose loved ones died in the Twin Tower um, terrorist attack spiritual applications that isn't it perfect, isn't it wonderful, right? Because that's just offensive. And the human condition is way more nuanced and way more poignant and painful than that. But the truth is, if you have a horrible foreign policy for 30 years, you know, as a foreign nation or 200 years, will it get to a place where possibly terrorists might like to fly airplanes into your financial district? Yeah. And is that, is, that, is that physics? Is that rebalancing? Is that understandable? Is it part of a perfect system that is always balanced? Yeah. But it's not perfect for those individuals who died, of course. Mm. But you started to see, I started to feel and feel in that moment, I felt that I understood how everything fits together. But there was one thing I couldn't balance. There was one thing that stood out in this perfect field that didn't make any sense to me. Because when I held myself in love in that way, I realized I had caused trouble for myself on purpose, not incidentally. Right. I had sabotaged a whole bunch of things in my life. And that, I couldn't get it out of my claw. I was like, um, and that for me is where you can create the most profound and rapid shifts, which is actually, to some degree, most people have some sabotage patterns and some people 
have really pronounced sabotage patterns. So for those of you listening to this now or watching this now, if you're someone who pushes away compliments, um, attracts unavailable or dysfunctional partners in both business and, and, and romance, um, uh, or and, or and, and, or when things are going well for you, you feel surprised and afraid that someone's going to come and knock on the door and say that you've been found out to be fraudulent, you know, imposter yeah. syndrome. Mm. And or if you struggle with addiction, those, those four things, those four indicators are very, very reliable. The first one regarding compliments, probably the most reliable indicator as to whether you have a self-sabotage pattern. And everyone right. has to a degree. But if you have all of those four things, then I would say you are holding yourself back unnecessarily in life. And you can notice a profound shift, like an enlightening, epiphany-based, utterly living in a different paradigm relationship to reality shift by work, working on self-sabotage, which is why I made that my focus, because one, it's so important for the world to be a better world. And it's so enjoyable to shift that for someone because it's so massive. Massive. Right. And, and, you're, and you've got a set of techniques. And are they, they based in hypnotherapy? The, 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 no, the, the I mean, all the techniques work. can be done without hypnotherapy, but hypnotherapy uh, amplifies and accelerates transformation. No doubt. No doubt about it. It is so powerful. It's not because hypnosis is powerful. It's because the unconscious mind is powerful. And so in coaching and traditional therapy, people aren't accessing the unconscious. And the unconscious is where behavior changes. And so that's why states of transcendence are key to all of the wisdom traditions, right? But they're not direct. They're kind of indirect. You meditate and pray. It's like, no, no, no. Using hypnosis, I can find that part of you who is purposefully pushing away compliments, pushing away people that would actually love you and pushing and, and, and throwing very big spanners into some beautiful opportunities on purpose. And we can change it. We can talk to it. We can help it think differently. And so it can stop. I mean, people don't understand. I mean, like, you know, it's quite an incredible thing using hypnosis to stop someone who smoked for 40 years in one session. It's quite oh. an extraordinary thing. Mm. It's an amazing feeling. And it takes yeah, a lot I had, of I had an old boss who did that with hypnotherapy, actually. Yeah. 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 Now, a lot of original hypnotherapy is you put someone into a suggestible state and then you just tell them over and over and over again that they don't smoke. But I used to work with those people. They'd come and see me. It would work for six months. Then I would work with them and they'd stop for good. Because for me, you have to find the part that thinks smoking is valuable, that it's providing a function, and you negotiate with it. And ah, it's beautiful. Okay. Then it decides, you're not, because willpower is I'm stronger than the part that wants to smoke. But what if you find the part that wants to smoke and get it not to want to smoke anymore? Then there's no effort required. Right. You don't need to worry about being sat with your mates whilst they smoke and wanting one. It's like, I don't want to. I just, mm. I just don't want to smoke. No part of me wants to smoke. Mm, mm. And you can do that with the part that wants to sabotage. You can find the parts inside you that don't want to go to bed on time so you can wake up refreshed. You can... It's an amazing thing. It's called parts negotiation as a technique. It's one of the six techniques of transformation that I've discovered that really work at changing lives. And it's probably the most powerful. You can just go in in a hypnotic or meditative state, find a part that's responsible for behavior and negotiate with it. Because all of our choices on some level are trying to serve us. Even the part that's sabotaging us, it's serving us. It's just using a very, very out of date 
and very limiting set of choices and it doesn't understand. And so we have to go and we're not firing these parts. We're not telling them off. We're not fighting them. Most people fight their saboteur. They fight the procrastinator. They fight the part that doesn't want to go to bed on time or eat the healthy food. They're in conflict with that part and that never changes it. You can't go in and protest yourself or anything really. Anything you resist persists. You have to work at putting your arm around its shoulder saying, what's going on? How can we work this out? What do you need? What do we need to do differently? It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how does, well, you talked earlier in the show, trauma resolution as being an important part of this. I mean, that's a huge part of my story. I've done, you know, over a decade's worth of trauma release work, you know, Mm. doing more tradition, well, using feeling-based therapy, talking therapy, but with a, with a big focus on uh, unconscious trauma and bringing that, bringing that up and processing it and dealing with it. So I'm interested in how you work with trauma. Yeah. Well, thank you. And it's like, of course, talking therapy works because, you know, it does create that space, but it, sometimes it can take a lot longer. Yeah. And that's okay. it's it's been a long process for me. That. Some people can afford that and some people, but some people can't. And some people are in such a crisis situation that they need something a bit quicker. But primarily the thing, my main focus with my clients is that I teach them these six techniques so that they can do it on themselves. Mm. So that people depend on me. Because the truth is, all my clients will be working on their trauma healing for 10, 20 years, like you did. Yeah. But they want them to be able to, after six months work with me, to do that themselves. Mm. And that's liberating and that's empowering. And that's an important kind of thing that I believe. It's lovely to do it with someone, but you don't need to. You can do it yourself. And that's what we try to, to create with the app that we created. So <clears throat> the tools for people to be able to do it themselves. But essentially... One of the advantages of using meditative or transcendent states is when we experience trauma when we're younger, there's basically a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings that we can't bear. They're too unbearable. We can't process them at time. So we shelve them. How we shelve them is we usually lock them down through denial or diminishing or dissociating. The tools we use to lock things down limit us. They limit us. That's we deny usually whether we, we, we pretend it was our fault or it doesn't matter, my, don't really, my needs to be met, or, you know, we become independent. We, we develop philosophies and ideas and ideologies because we've locked stuff down and those things end up really, really limiting us. Yeah. So the idea being is you want to then be able to go and feel what once you couldn't feel, think what you once couldn't think without using any defensive bullshit, diminish it or deny yeah, it. That's, that's totally stuff right. Yeah. Right? But what people don't realize is that the, the painful stuff in a kind of physiological sense is dysregulated system. So the autonom- autonomic nervous system is in what we call the sympathetic response. Okay, so it's the adrenal response. It's a fight or flight response. It's cortisol, adrenaline. It's basically saying to your body, it's a pocket of pain that says, I'm not safe. I don't feel good. That, that feeling, if you haven't processed that, most people have got 100, maybe 1,000 lock boxes, all these different pockets of I'm not safe, I don't feel good. That seriously affects your mood every day. Yeah. And you might be thinking, oh, well, I, wasn't, I had a happy childhood. I don't, you don't need people putting cigarettes out on your arm to have trauma. Trust me, trauma happens in every family. Even if you had perfectly enlightened parents, 
just the process of leaving the womb to becoming a someone trying to stand on two legs, <laughs> which is not natural, right? It's, it's his trick humans have perfected, like, you know, like a monkey at a circus, but it's not natural. It, it, the whole process of going from zero to 30 as a human is fraught with emotional pain and trauma, even if you're a blessed soul. But many of us had more difficult upbringings and more difficult moments and brutal educational experiences. But in a, in a simpler sense, those are frozen pockets of pain of, of uh, an adrenal response. And the most amazing thing is if you use deep meditative states, then you are in the parasympathetic. You're in the parasympathetic, which says to the body, I'm safe. You're releasing oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, profoundly powerful biochemicals. So if when you're in that deep state, you go and revisit a moment in time where you were let down or you were hurt, or something bad happened, or something good that should have happened that didn't. Yeah. You are then able to then revisit these parts. And the difference in the technique I use and that I train my therapist to do is instead of going back in time, which can be destabilizing, what you want to do is find the part from the past and bring it to the present. Yeah. So you invite the younger version of you to commune with you as an adult. Mm. And then together, journey to memories with your support mm. but as the adult you're as a resourced adult but most importantly as you're thinking about that time when that teacher did that mean thing or that parent said that cruel thing or they forgot they could pick you up late from school or whatever it may have been that moment of difficulty or worse something worse is you're reflecting on it in a deeply meditative calm and centered state whilst your parasympathetic nervous system is running the show that says to that part of you, I'm safe, I've made it, I'm secure. We only care about this stuff because we worry about our survival. Mm. We only lock it down because we're afraid of our survival. So by being able to bring that content to our present awareness, which is grounded, feeling safe and feeling adult, that younger version of us that's frozen in time gets to integrate into our adult form and relax. And that one little pocket of trauma, that one pocket of dysregulated fight or flight, where we feel I'm not okay and I'm not safe in the world, dissolves. And we've just brought another fragment of our soul back, another little part of our heart back to peace. And the most amazing thing is any belief that we use to lock that down, like, oh, I probably deserved it, it's my fault, or I shouldn't expect much, and people always let you down, and that's no big deal, I'll just be independent, I'll do it myself, right? Or fuck it, give me another beer. I don't care, right? Whatever it may be. Yeah. All of that dissolves there. So the limiting beliefs associated are made beautifully redundant. We don't need to blame ourselves and perpetuate a narrative of being naughty and hence sabotaging. We just, we just hold ourselves in love and peace. And just another little part of our nervous system is regulated. So one of our lockboxes is now peace. And you want to get some of your hundred lock boxes in less pain and more joy, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, and that's, that's really it. And so the, the meditative state or the hypnotic state is very powerful because it, it regulates, it regulates the dysregulated system uh, more quickly. Wow. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. And so much of what you've described, you know, it resonates for me and calls with my experience, except for the part, because, because I, it bring those feelings into the present. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm the adult experiencing it. But yeah. I, when I work with that trauma, I do let my sympathetic nervous system fly, right? I do punch the cushions. I do 
yeah. yell and scream. So, so, but what's fascinating to me is you're saying you don't necessarily need to engage in a sort of a full expression of, let's say, there's some rage there. You can stay in parasympathetic and and work with it in oh, that yeah, state. So- what a great question. And so no, it's like when you when so you keep the observational state of the adult that's grounded, right? And sometimes that can mean rage will come through you. Absolutely. And so what you don't want to be doing is trying to cathart to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You can em- truly embody it. And so no, I encourage my clients if anger is there and anger's coming through. I call it kind of like popcorn out, feet up. So you've got this adult awareness like, wow, I'm raging. And that could include beating a mattress up, you know, punching something, getting it all out, but not from a place of I'm not safe, right? This place I didn't feel safe and I'm now fighting, right? And I'm going to win. And it's like, so you express it. And in that, you're still holding that adult awareness, like now we're safe and I've got you. I've got you. And so you're creating space. So no catharsis, there is a place for catharsis. But very rapidly, what you, you won't find yourself needing to do that much of that. Because the, usually, first of all, you burst the denial. So the kids are like, oh, no, I had a happy childhood. It's like, well, yes. And there were some terrible things that happened. Yeah. And some amazing things that should have happened that didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and almost so that as, important, certainly been as important in my yeah, Yes. What they call trauma of omission. Yeah. So it's like there's trauma, event-based trauma and non-event-based trauma, which is thing, the omission of good yeah. things. They're harder to locate because they didn't happen, right? <laughs> so yeah. there's this general feeling of, of our needs not being met, yeah. which really yeah. turns into a belief, oh, I'm not okay, I'm not good enough, and people won't see me or get me, and I won't get what I deserve, right? It's like really limiting beliefs that if you believe that, really cause a lot of trouble, can cause yeah. a lot of trouble unnecessarily. Mm. So, um, yeah, so by um, being able to meet all these parts, express whatever needs to be expressed, to feel in the body anything that you couldn't feel before. So that can feel like a fully embodied expression of rage. But then, of course, what's usually below the anger is grief yeah. and sadness. And, and the, the, for me, the most transformational piece is, is not... So you're staying in the adult observation, but you have to get the expression from the child. And the absolute key piece is holding space for the child underneath all of that to admit that it is disappointed in its own parent. Okay, yeah. And not from the adult, from the child. Yeah. It's from the child, you know. And when someone from that deeply connected space says, oh, I wish my mum was different, or I wish my dad was different, or I'm disappointed, or worse, I don't really like my mum, you know. When a four-year-old, when that dawns on a four-year-old or a seven-year-old, there's nothing more toxic. There's nothing more terrifying. Because what that means is I don't really like them and I'm not sure I'm going to survive. Yeah. And so you hold space for that kid, not the adult, for the kid to say, I don't really like my mum. It's, it's profoundly life-changing and often combined with a lot of tears and a lot of emotion. And if they can hold steady and hold that kid and then say, but I'm here for you, I'll look after you, I'll give you what you want. I, you haven't even met my kids. You haven't seen my house. You haven't met our cat. You haven't seen the car I drive. They're like, really? Is it okay out there? It's like, oh my God, I got you, Bubba. You know, I got you. Yeah. And then we're finally able to give to ourselves what we couldn't get when we were younger. And that, that, that transforms our lives. And people might be thinking, listen to this going, 
like, oh, you know, ooh, that sounds a bit challenging or a bit threatening or a bit weird in terms of in the boardroom, right? Or how I'm a founder listening to this and I, you know, I want to take my business from like 500,000 to, to, to a 10 million turnover. I'm like, this is the stuff that will do it. Yeah. This is the stuff that will do it. It's like, I've seen it over and over again. You transform this, you become a better leader. You, you become way better at sales. You establish your value, your boundaries. Just, you just stop taking things personally. You let go of um, validation loops, whereby which you're paralyzed by your fear of what people will think of you. It's like our unresolved issues are what prevents us from truly fly. And of course, then we're able to experience heightened states of spiritual connection, which is then we get all the fulfillment we ever sought, which doesn't come from our business becoming a success. I was having a chat with a founder uh, end of last year. He's like been very successful, raised 23 million in his Series A funding. He's set within a few years to, to valuing his business around 300 million. And he's set within a few years to be a unicorn, to be getting a billion pound valuation. And he's very, very driven. And I said, just out of curiosity, when you raise that 23 million, giving you like a, a, a company valuation of, of, of 300 million and, and personal worth of like half of that, how long did that feel good for? Like, how long did it elevate your mood for? And he stopped and thought about it. And I was like, two and a half days. <laughs> and he's like, maybe two. <laughs> because <laughs> that stuff doesn't touch the sides you know it's like what touches the sides is who we're being in the process you know and it's fun to have more shiny things and to work harder and make things happen it is but that's not where our joy comes from you know yeah yeah and and so how so what what, what i'm getting curious about here and this is partially on my own experience so i've i've done a lot of that trauma release work and, I, and I, everything you've described i've experienced right beliefs just dissolve feeling happier, you know, day to day, relationships gets better, you know, all aspects of life get better and materially, right? And you're right, like more of the good stuff comes. Um, but I suppose what I still haven't had, right? And it, there's a little bit of me that's like jealous, if I'm completely owning my reaction here, that yeah. nothing like you experienced in Goa, right? I mean, I <laughs> meditate twice a day, I have these moments where I feel at peace and, you know, some sense of connection to something other. But I, I, I don't feel like I've ever had a sort of transformational moment in the way that you've described, and right. I've done all of this work. So I'm just, I'm just curious, like what, what, ex, you know, what makes the difference between yeah, doing a lot of great work and then that almost like that next level where you're having these these bigger breakthroughs in consciousness. Yeah, and you know, it's it's understandable, and um, and I think it is there is some dumb luck at play, right? And also, there's that brilliant book title the book itself is great too but the title says it all by jack cornfield you know after the ecstasy now the laundry right right it's like that epiphany moment for me was extraordinary and was exquisite and um and i have in the last 23 years been able to tap into that state of that kind of liberation and and connection uh Maybe five times. Right. Okay. okay. Makes, this is awful. I'm okay. totally only my ego here, but that makes me feel a bit better. Right. I thought it might. You know, and the truth is, those subsequent times were, were, were nowhere near as powerful as that one time. Right. 
and um and but you have to understand it, it would be hard to estimate the degree to which i was a uh, nut job and disconnected and so ignorant to this stuff like if you've if you've had taste and preparation along the way it's like i, I it's like it's you know it was like from a completely leadite like non-connected perspective what i experienced was so such a difference whereas for people who are a bit more woke a bit more conscious have had meditative experiences even if they experience what i had it wouldn't be as profound because their starting point is way above where i, I was yeah. right it's interesting yeah way above so in that sense and, and and ultimately you know it is it isn't it isn't relevant What's way more relevant is how are you turning up every day in your relationship? You know, it's like those everyday, that everyday ordinariness around us, the simplicity of being and the, and, the, and the beauty of having an open heart. That is way more important than the, the whiz-bang experiences. And, and, and I, was, I, I was chasing that for quite a while. I was chasing that high for quite a while. And I began to realize it was a distraction. I read the absolutely brilliant book by Chogram Trumpa called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And it really helped me see that I'd moved from my kind of materialistic ego, right? Where I was just trying to have sex with as many girls as possible and take as many, have as many wild experiences and have as many people at my nightclubs. And, you know, we're running parties in Ibiza and, you know, all of that to then being a spiritual person. And then my ego is like, oh, I hope, in yoga, I can touch my toes and I hope I can meditate for longer. And I hope I have more profound spiritual experiences. It's like, and I'm looking for the perfect teacher and the perfect model. It's like, oh, still totally in my ego, right? And just, yeah. just transplanted it to more beautiful spiritual things. And so it's interesting because when I run workshops, um, using this inner child work like this with powerful music and meditation, some people will have profound breakthroughs, which are highly emotional, highly emotional. Um, and, um, and you've got other people on the course who, who aren't getting that, right? And it's annoying, right? And it, you're managing breakthrough envy is, is, a, is a difficult thing when in community. And uh, so it's, uh, I ask people to, 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 to aim for that very, very steady, present, mindful, heart opened, feeling connected, feeling grateful, feeling the love of the universe on your face, on your back, like aim for that, aim for that. Everything else is incidental. And arguably, like if you had a really big, like oneness moment where you're in floods of tears and, you know, you might then just be spending like a decade chasing that like I did. So it could be a curse. That's, that's fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. And, and you mentioned the two phrases in the book, so spiritual bypass and spiritual materialism and i've I'd come across mm. spiritual bypass before as a, as a as a you know abusing meditation to perhaps avoid feelings and so on I, and i kind of understood that and but this this idea of spiritual materialism i like and i've definitely got a touch of that right it was good to recognize it and there's definitely a part of me that's like okay when am i when am i going to be constantly connected to oneness <laughs> you know or when am i going to have an experience like in goa or on a mountain where i you know open my heart to to all that is love like that that's a put of me that wants that yeah. yeah of course and i i think it's perpetuated by by an, and, let, and let's call it an industry on purpose um mm. which is this which is the kind of pinnacle of the patriarchal spirituality where spiritual teachers perpetuate this idea that there's 
there's a state of enlightenment enlightenment that exists. Mm. I don't really believe that there is. I think there's there's a life where we have more and more enlightened choices. We might have moments of enlightened clarity, some which are profoundly emotional, but they're not fixed and they're not permanent. And I don't believe anyone, any teacher across the history of time has been able to reside in a constant state of unconnected, of connected, unconditional love. I just, I just don't think it's true and I don't think it's a healthy ideal. And I think any teacher pretending that they are is, is profoundly dangerous. And people are so ready to deify their teachers. Yeah. And it's really a real shame. And all of the, the facilitators I teach and in my practice, at the end of my workshop, I share all the way through, but particularly again, I share a number of my foibles and my issues, my challenges, so that people, are, so I'm disbanding that projection where people think, oh, he's got everything. He's got it all together. He's, he's always perfect. It's like really, really, really not, you know, it's like, and I mean, you know, have kids and, and, and any ideas you have about your permanent perfection will massively evaporate, you know, but it's like, it's important for any, anyone in any kind of teaching role to keep bursting people's projection or, you know, because it's just, I don't think it's helpful because of course our ego like fantasizes about this permanent state of bliss, you know, and, and we're like aiming for it. It's what, what people call this vertical spirituality. And it's like, no, it's not vertical. It's not, right. it's expansive horizontally. And our mood and our sense of connection to grace is, is fluctuating all the time, all the time. Yeah. And that part of us that wants something like that is the part of us that prevents us from experiencing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be there every day. So, you know, it's going to be there every day. It's there for me too. You know, it's like, I want to, you know, be in a state of perfection where I can say one sentence and the world will fall apart in a deep state of rapturous joy forevermore. You know, it's like, <laughs> You're all transformed. One sentence, that's it. One step. It's like, you know, or, or I mean, in in India, it's Shakti Pat, right? So the guru doesn't even need to say anything. They just come and they just touch your forehead and and grace is imparted and that's it. You're shaking on the floor in a state of total bliss and wonderment. Pretty cool. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, And then just as you're speaking, the other thing that comes to me and and, and something I could be guilty of is on on the trauma release side, I'm like, okay, well, just surely now I'm done. Now I'm done with the trauma release. Now I can just do like spiritual stuff and it's just, just meditating from now on and some yoga. Right. And, but that's never, that's another form of spiritual materialism is the way I'm seeing it. Totally. Yeah, totally. So some people say to me, how long am I going to have to do this inner child work for? And I'm like, okay, let's imagine I've just introduced you to this person that you love, like your new best friends. You just cannot, you know, you just, you get on really well. You really like them. Similar values. It's like, you wouldn't call me up and like, how long am I going to have to hang out with Richard? I mean, like, what's the deal here? It's like, you would just be excited to develop a friendship and to spend time with them. And it's like, that for me, it's like, when people say to me, oh my God, you know, you just spend all day opening cans of worms, you know, for people. I'm like, no, no, I don't. I spend all day long rescuing kids. Mm. I'm risking kids. And so for me, it's like the work is like about soul reclamation. It's like I'm finding fragments of myself lost in time and I'm bringing them home. This isn't a life of trauma healing. This is a life of, of reclaiming myself, you know, reclaiming right. myself. And I like that. that. I like that. It's better, right? I mean, I have a less romantic view of spirituality that I'll share with you now because I can't help it. I'm addicted to it. But 
which is we are we are like the the shit eating bacteria in the sewage plant of God's heart. Okay. Right. 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 <laughs> so we're embodied right yeah. in this field, right? And we all have our own packet of shit, right? Yeah. That we have our generational trauma that we have to mm. work through. We're meant to munch through it with some sense of glee. And at the end of us comes clean water, right? It's like all of us. And I realize wow, more, it's all collective healing. It's all collective healing. My, my, my work on myself is, is, is your work on yours and yours is on mine. Everything you've done has helped me get further on. All of your trauma work has helped mine and mine has helped yours. And the more people seeing that, the more we raise that vibration, the more we're clearing the fluid in which we're resting, you know? Yeah. And it's, and it's like, ah, you know, ultimately the, uh, is like, we're all well fed and all the water is clean, you know, it's all yeah. in process, you know? And it's like, ah, that's what we're here for. And in that we return. It's like, it's, it's one big remembrance project for the divine field, you know? Wow. Beautifully put. Yeah. And the fact you're evoking, you know, the water, and, and I think that literally happens, right? We've got a guest coming up soon who does, does this, it's written a book called The Fourth Phase of Water and does, and there are people out there, right, doing work with water and looking at water up before and after you've meditated. And it'd be fascinating to see people's, if you could take people's fluids before and after trauma work, I'm sure, you know, a lot of what you're just speaking about literally happens, right? Yeah, yeah. totally, totally. And for the field and they've done things where people meditate in a city and then crime rates go down it's like right. yeah it's like it's it's you know it challenges our paradigm of we're separate right mm. Mm. but actually when we recognize it's that everything is connected and how we do one thing how we all do everything and everyone's freedom is our freedom you know the greatest indicator that someone has really touched like spirit some really connected to the truth of the field of oneness is they just start helping that's right. the best thing because just logical when you get that you just want to help just get the word out because the more people who are free the more free we are we're our happiness is directly connected to the happiness of the world because we're one field of consciousness you know yeah, yeah. So it's just logical. So then people start running podcasts and doing their bit and trying to raise the vibration. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yes, in fact, I had an early therapist who said that. He said, said you want, one day, Richard, you'll, you'll want to share some of this stuff. Well, I'm like bawling my eyes out on the floor. I'm like, like <laughs> I'm going to have anything to do with this. But of course you do, right? Over time, you're like, I don't want to share this with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed, right? Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. It, you know, we've, well, it feels like we've... um yeah, we've we've uh, really taken a, a dive into your your philosophy and the way that you work, and you know you seem to have, to least to me brought a lot of wisdom. Is there is there anything you think we've missed or you'd want to touch on from the book or what you're doing with the with the app, which we haven't even talked about? Um, music and we haven't touched on. I'm, I'm I'm aware. Yeah, well, I'm happy to to say something which what I discovered. So, I I used music quite a lot for a while for the first five years first few, two years i didn't use music at all with my clients then i spent a few years using it because there's certain uh musical frequencies and sound frequencies that you can use that take people into the meditative trance right so it's easier whilst i'm doing an induction taking people in um uh it, yeah if you can use some music that makes that better why not right so i did and it's nice and and then you do the process work where you're doing some healing talking to them about sabotage or 
their relationship with their parents or whatever it is. And I would usually just have a kind of meditative backdrop music playing to that. And then when you're then getting people to visualize being free or being more loving or being more forgiving or the resolution, which is the end point, you dive in, do the difficult stuff and come out with the shinier stuff. That's a good way of doing a nice, complete process. I would often play uplifting music. And even at times I would be like ranting at them about their potential. And if you get that right, people will literally be in floods of tears because they're feeling um, seen and they're believing in the possible and they're making it manifest with all of those biochemicals and all of that. You're changing the new, new, the, with the neuroplasticity, new neural pathways are being forged. And the more emotion you use using music, it, it can be very powerful for mind programming and for changing behavior. And I've been doing that for some time and loving that. But this one day I was working with a guy, very straight guy, not a hippie guy at all. And he had issues with his father and I'd taken him in nice and he was in a good deep level of, of meditation. And then I just had this idea and it just came through. And I said, in a moment, I'm going to play you a piece of music and I want you to listen to that music as the resolution happening between you and your dad. Maybe it'll be a soundtrack to a visualization of your own making. Maybe you'll just feel the necessary emotions that you need to release to find peace with your dad. Maybe you won't think of anything at all. It's just working on conscious level. But just listen to this music. But I want you to ask your unconscious to use it as medicine. So every note is like a therapy session directly. And I had no idea where this came from. It was like, wow. Honestly, part of me thought, you lazy bastard. Well, you just going to play him some music. Do some flipping work, you know. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. abated and I, and I did. And I played this piece of music. And it became really clear to me he was having a really powerful experience. And so I played some more music and I made a few suggestions. And he, he, you know, he had the tears of the wet chest, right? So you get tears, but then the tears, when they're really good, you can see there's rivers all the way down in his right. chest with, with tears, you know? And, 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 and afterwards he was like, oh my God, I, 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 um, I saw my dad, but then he became like this blue crystal. And again, not a kind of crystals kind of guy, right? He became a crystal and I put him in my heart and then my heart exploded with love and oh, it was amazing. And I just felt so much just oh, like it doesn't matter. And we've been battling for years. And then at the end, like it was him and me and me when I was a boy and him when he was a boy and we were all dancing around a field together. And I was like, wow. dang, that is way better than anything I would have done, you know? Right. Like, I've got a whole bunch of visualizations for forgiveness, seeing people through your eyes and flipping it and meeting their inner children, a whole bunch of things you can do to change how people feel about people. I didn't have to do any of that. He did it all. And what he did was perfect for him. It was more perfect. And in that moment, I was like, oh, my God, you can use music as a, as a direct metaphor for a literal healing process not as background music, but as the process. And so that's why I end up, but I was like DJing. So you're then DJing all these different types of tracks. But what I found was tracks would be great for the first bit, but then the second bit would be a bit not quite right. And I got, was getting quite frustrated because the music wasn't doing everything I wanted it to do. And so that's when I started working with the film composer. And, uh, and film composers understand how to create emotionally evocative music to underpin the, the message of the movie. And yeah. so he was perfect. So then we were able to start creating these very, very powerful guided meditations 
that enable people to uh, go on these deeply healing journeys, getting their own answers, getting their own insights, meeting their own inner children. And the music was coordinating with my voice and it would go up and down and change. And, you know, at one point we're even ascribing different meaning to different parts of the music. So in the inner child healing um, uh, recording, which I'd be very happy to, you can share with this. We oh, can yeah, script. great. Uh, it's, it's called support. It's 70 minutes. It's a really beautiful, long journey. And there's a point in it where it's like, in a moment, you're going to meet your inner child. Now, usually at that moment, people are like, yay. And also Ooh, a bit apprehensive. So I say, now just notice that part, you're probably just feeling a little apprehensive at the idea of that, even though you want it. Now in a minute, you're going to hear a cello and that cello is going to be nervous. And that speaks to that part of you that's nervous. Mm. And then you're going to hear a female voice, which is your heart telling you, until you look at this stuff, your life's not going to really work properly in its time. And so this nervous cello would come in, and then this very reassuring female voice, but they're slightly discordant. They're not in agreement. They're not in musical mm. harmony. And then over the process of a three or four minute process, the cello and the voice come into coherence. And the symbolic unconscious meaning there is it's now time. Wow. And that dissolves the resistance. and then we would play this very, very beautiful lament, this very powerful strings piece to put you in touch with some of the pain and sadness of the inner child. Right. And it's all, you know, you're in the parasympathetic state, you've been held musically. It, you know, this enables people to do really deep healing on themselves without the cost or expense or inconvenience of a, of a gifted therapist. Yeah. And so for me, it's like music with intention combined with a deep parasympathetic meditative state is a scalable mental health solution in a world that really needs that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wow. And so wow. Music, that sounds music powerful. is the key to your epiphanies. Really. And, what, and as I reflect on my own experience, I, I've done a lot of work in the room with a therapist doing, doing the, the talking work and the, and the mm. deep feeling work and all of that. Um, and very often the, the therapist will say, hey, go listen to a music, you know, allow yourself to watch sad movies, allow yourself to, you know, to listen to pieces of music that, that bring, you know, bring up feeling, you know, yeah. work on it, bring that back to the therapy session. But you're talking about putting them both into the same event. I can, yeah, I can imagine the yeah. power of that. Super powerful. You're doing that negotiating there and then. And it's, yeah, and it's, and of course, it doesn't just have to be about trauma. So after a while, I was like, I could do this on the dance floor. I could do this on the dance floor. What if we got people together, we got them meditating to begin with, and they gave me permission to play the music across the night, and I would give an intention before each piece of music. And then so this dance music or the bass line in this track could be your heart opening, and the beats could be you remembering what you love about life. And I was like, hold on a minute. So I created a experiment, which I called Hypnosis Raves in the beginning. Uh, but actually, um, um, we went on to be a, like a long running, we ran for three years in London, a kind of conscious rave. And we did all of that. We even had a recording that people would listen to beforehand to prime them. We played that uh, aspects of that throughout the night and all this anchoring and triggering and getting this permission. And I'd be like, this tracks to make you feel grateful. This tra and, and at the end, it, people were in a state of total like euphoria, like absolutely like people coming up going, oh my God, I haven't, you know, I've been, I've been addicted to alcohol and drugs and I've been sober for years and I've missed this feeling. 
And it's amazing that you can recreate it without needing to take the ecstasy. You know, it was amazing. And again, it's like our unconscious, our soul is so ready to communicate to us. It's so ready to make us feel the feelings you want to feel, to, to, to let us know what we need to work on. You know, you just have to give it permission. You have to listen and you have to then use art or music or to evoke the emotion. And like, oh my God, it, it, it's there's so much that's possible. If you just, if you put yourself in a position to be moved and you listen and you pay attention, it's like your soul will give you your next steps, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. That sounds, uh, well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I recognize something having been sober myself and, you know, it, it just clean of everything for, you know, what is it, you know, coming on two decades. And uh, yeah, I can, I can. I can understand that there is something you get when you're, you know, you're high with substances that isn't so easy to access in, in a sober life. Yeah. And I realized my spirituality had made me boring. Maybe boring. Mm. And I think spirituality is meant to make you joyful and celebration is a really important part of spirituality. And we also need to celebrate with kids. And so kids need to celebrate with adults. Kids are really good at partying. They help adults party. Yeah. And kids need to see their grown-ups happy and celebrating yeah. life. And, and because of booze and alcohol, we keep them separate. It's not appropriate to be pissed as a parent around your eight-year-old. But if you take that out of the equation, I can't tell you, I would watch the kids looking at their dads dancing around like nutters, and they loved it. They loved it. They, in fact, they need it. Yeah. We need to party together. Indigenous cultures party together. Yeah. We need that. And I, when I, I was like, oh, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. Yeah, what a great point. The last two summers, we ran a little festival in our garden for like 100 people. All kids welcome. And, you know, it's just, uh, it was brilliant. Using these tools, using these tools. Wow. You must be pretty special in the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, we've moved now, actually. We've moved back closer to London. We had all this land in Suffolk. So, you know, we had like an acre and a half. And so we, you know, it was, we had space for camping and, and, but because we did it, we, we created a microwave rave for this experience of this euphoria. But we just ran that from 8.30 to 10. So we were done by 10. And then we yeah. went and did fire ceremony. You know, it's like when you're not on drugs, you can't dance for more than an hour and a half at full tilt. Not really. Yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes people are non-committal and they're coming off the dance floor. I'm like, no, F that. Yeah. We're all going to have a microwave and you're going to dance your heart out for 90 minutes. Hmm. that's what i ask but nothing your feet off the floor absolutely if you can do that and follow my suggestions we will have a magical magical rave. and it was it was amazing yeah. absolutely amazing we do a little meditation at the end to harness all the love and the last one it turned into a rolling yes where i got people just expressing yes yes yeah and it literally the neighbors must have thought it was the biggest most successful simultaneous orgasm orgy ever because literally <laughs> like 120 people screaming yes over and over and over again for about five minutes i just stood back and it was like wow this is amazing this is amazing my god a lot of fun wow. yeah what an experience your life is tom this is uh <laughs> well, this is something i've been experimenting for a long time about how to make people feel good basically mm. and i really believe personal them is the new rock and roll i really do and Sorry, a I lot missed that. Oh, personal development, development is the new rock. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's like 
our our places where we congregate to 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 get connected spiritually should be wide-eyed wild celebration you know just Mm. like absolutely joyful and joyous you get like you have intention live music um and and movement and dance and unconditional love in the center of it if people people are very ready to get there and it's like not that hard and so I'm excited to be returning to a world which is open to more and more of these kind of events. So I mean, holding yeah, I think off, right? Yeah, it's right. It's, it's changing, isn't it? We are. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. So we will be running more of these celebrations. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'll have to try and get along to one. I'm in, I'm in Suffolk right now. So if you ever come back and do anything in Suffolk, <laughs> oh, whereabouts? So I'm I'm recording this right now in Bury St Edmunds. So. Oh, right. Cool, 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 cool. We yeah. were in Boxford, near to, just near to Sudbury previously. Yeah. Okay. And for anybody listening international, we do have international. That's sort of just a bit <laughs> up from London at the bottom of yeah, the, yeah. England. Yeah. Up, and, up and right. Yeah, up yeah. Up and to the right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I was quite disturbed to notice, you know, you have in that part of East Anglia, you've got Norfolk and Suffolk, right? Yeah. It involved me to realise that that was North Folk and South Folk. <laughs> right. That's right. And yeah. I've never noticed, like Norfolk, Norfolk, yeah. Norfolk. Yeah, yeah, Norfolk, yeah, yeah. Norfolk, and, uh, Also, I'd never realised that a fortnight, as a word, was 14 nights to squash together. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that night. I knew the Norfolk Suffolk thing. Fortnight, Right. Terrifying. Terrifying the things we don't notice. Yes. Okay, well, um, well, this has felt like a micro-rave, this whole conversation. So... Um, I'm very grateful. Oh, well, it's been lovely meeting you. And I've, uh, you know, I love what you stand for. I love what you're doing. And uh, I think it's awesome. And thank you so much for inviting me uh, along. If anyone wants to check out my, my work, I'm just tomfortismayor.com. And I'm just, yeah, I'm so, so grateful um, to you for this opportunity. There's a little self-sabotage questionnaire you can do on my website. If you've been listening to this and you think, am I self-sabotaging? It will give you a score and it will let you know where you're at on that scale. And it's, rec- it's high. I re- really recommend you check that out. Um, and uh, because it's worth sorting that out. It's worth, if you are, honestly, it will change your life to, to turn that around. And so if you take nothing else from this, it's like understand that everyone does it to some degree. It's normal and changing it doesn't have to be that difficult. Brilliant. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put a link to the book, uh, yeah, the, the free mind experience, but I feel like I've just had one. So <laughs> if the book's anything like you talking, uh, for people, uh, it will live up to its title. The, and then the free mind, uh, freemindhub.com, right. For, for the app, which has a lot of your meditations and the music and so on. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, actually probably the best thing to do because actually the way in which the app was set up, I, I got investors and that's a whole other, we could do a whole podcast on, on what it is to get investment and for people to, they didn't want it to be a therapy app and really, and so it was designed in strange ways. So if people are really interested in our recordings, it's probably more effective to reach out to me and I'll get okay. people to have links. So if you're interested, we'll also give you the link to this one recording called support, which is the inner child healing. What program. you mentioned, brilliant. Okay. So yeah, we'll get yeah, the support yeah. link. So yeah, we'll get you your the- website if they're interested in in the material plus the book. Yeah, exactly. Most of the recordings are going to be on my website for free very soon, so it's better than subscribing to the app. So, okay, 
feel like I tread on, tread on a, a mine there or something, but good. It's a bit tricky, yeah. It's a little bit tricky, yeah, yeah. But I've yeah. learned a lot about what it is to have people come and in, invest in something they see and how important it is to be true to who you really are. And uh, otherwise things go a bit weird. Good. Okay. Um, Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again, Tom. This has been awesome. Um, yeah, I can't wait to get it out there. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.